0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. So glad that you are here this morning. I think several new ones. I don't know. Sometimes I ask people, hey, is this your first time? And it's like, no, this is my seventh month, and so apologize. On this side of the hill, not only does time move a lot quicker, but there are other things that come into play as well. A couple of um, announcements. Next Sunday morning, our newest full-time staff member, Jeff Kelly, is going to be preaching. That's exciting. So uh, we will have score sheets outside. If you come in, you can... nah just kidding. You're going to love it. I've heard this guy online. I haven't heard him live, but I'm really looking forward to Jeff preaching next week. And then also I want to mention final call for Grace Connection. If you are relatively new to Grace, you're interested in knowing more about Grace before you make the decision whether or not this is the place to come. If you wish to be a member, then this is a mandatory class. We're doing it a little differently this year than other or this Week than other times. We're doing it all on Saturday morning and Sunday morning. So if you'll be here Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, but you need to sign up either out here at the Next Steps area in the back left corner or online. uh, See Jeff, the guy that's going to be preaching next week. Uh, See Jeff, Ricky Lee, any of the staff, and tell us that you're going to be coming uh, this coming weekend. Then also, one last Plug also for South Wake Bible Institute. We have four classes that are going to be taught this year, assuming there are enough people for the classes. And it starts next Monday night, not tomorrow night, but the following Monday night at Wake uh, Chapel Bible Church or Wake Chapel Church in Fuquay, Verena. So sign up for that as well online. There are some cards also about the classes that will be offered and how you can... Get the question just to get you thinking. So, as I often do, want to begin this morning with a question just to get you thinking. If you could choose to be like anyone in Scripture, who would it be? Well, who would you choose to emulate? Good answer. Jesus is always a good answer. Um, When it gets right down to it, when you think about it, there are not many figures in Scripture without flaws. So while you might say, I want to be like King David, a man after God's own heart, someone might want to ask you, so if you find yourself having committed a moral sin, you think you'll try to cover that sin by murdering someone. That's what David did and yet called a man after God's own heart. It's good to remember that there's only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. Uh, today we're going to be spending time in 1 Peter for the third out of four weeks in this opening series of the new decade. The more things change, the more Jesus stays the same. I think it's, it, it, it's not only the right, it is the duty of senior citizens always to say, Well, back in my day things were a lot better. Uh, things were different back then. It's just it's our job, so just bear with us. Uh, but aren't you glad for the truth of Hebrews thirteen five? I think it is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. The focus for today's sermon is mission. And that title may invoke thoughts of doing great things for God, but that is not the emphasis of today's text, nor is it the emphasis of the majority of the New Testament epistles, which is where we find, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, instruction for life together as a church family. Michael Card has said in so many words, The surprising thing in the Old Testament is that we discover a God who is kind. God has always been merciful, and God will always be holy. It's not one God in the Old Testament and another God in the New Testament. Perhaps the most surprising realization in the New Testament is just how ordinary this life is that we are called to live. It must say something about our teaching from the pulpit in churches that believe scripture that we feel so inadequate when our lives are not marked by one magnificent achievement after another. In fact, the title for today's message, which begins with mission, surely conjures images of monumental events and praiseworthy successes. It is, after all, the American way as well as the biblical mandate for mission. The trouble is, we have difficulty distinguishing between the Great Commission and a version of the American dream with religious implication. You get that? Trouble distinguishing between the Great Commission and a version of the American dream that is laced with religious implication. To say that the life we live as Jesus' followers is more ordinary than advertised does not mean that it's unimportant. Indeed, the most important matters of eternity are at stake. So how are we to make sense of all of this? Ron Dreyer speaks for many of us when he writes, and I think I've shared this before, everydayness is my problem. It is easy to think about what you would do in wartime or if a hurricane blew through, or if you spent a month in Paris, or if your guy wins the election. It's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. Can you relate? Today's text is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22. After reading the text, I'm going to jump right into the outline, but it will be helpful for you to have your Bible or your screens open, as the case may be, to the text. As I read through the text, seek to absorb the full design of God's mission for you and for us, for his people, which calls for faithfulness in both everyday life and in witnessing opportunities, whenever and wherever they arise. It is our custom, out of respect for the scripture, to stand as it is read. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. That doesn't mean that those who don't stand when the word is read are disrespectful. It's just our practice. Reading in the English Standard Version. Finally. Just a word about that word, finally. In the New Testament, it rarely means finally. Just as when a preacher says, finally, it rarely means Uh, We have a little clock up here to help me remember the time. Unfortunately, it's broken. (laughs) So uh, let's get going. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary. of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you? If you were zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we've been singing about all morning, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authority, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of God for the people. Thank you, and <clears throat> Three primary points this morning, beginning with, be as serious about life together in covenant community as God is. For 20 years as director of TBR Christian Camp and Retreat Center, I sought to create a sense of community for short-term families. Now, we had some long-term community in that uh, there were at least four or five staff members and families and or families that stayed for 10 years or longer uh, during their tenure at TBR. And when we were there, man, we were all living together on the same property. We ate together often. We just did life together as staff members. And we attended church, but still we were busy on Sunday mornings a lot of times Preaching the word at camp with groups that were in. Uh, community, for the most part, though, was mostly weekend community or week long community at best. It's amazing when you put aside all outside distractions how quickly people come together in a setting like Team Valley Ranch. Um, I, I wondered, though, I always wonder what it would be like. To live in that church community and family where you did life together as a larger body and weren't involved in that type of ministry. It's the—it's what I've discovered over the last 21 and a half years, how beautiful it is. It's been wonderful, but wonderful doesn't always mean easy. Some of the most satisfying relationships have been the ones uh, that have been challenged at some point, but they're stronger and better even for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we have sought to live life with one another as we're called to do. We do life better together than apart. This Christian life is designed to be lived together, and it's part of our witness to the loss. Uh, as Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together, that's why that's in quotations. And think about this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, preaching the gospel during the Hitler years, on Hitler's list, he had, uh, came from an influential family, so it took a while for Hitler to arrest him. Finally, he was arrested when he was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler. But put in jail and made it to the last two to three weeks of the, uh, of, of the war. And in fact, Hitler was said to have personally ordered his execution before the Allies took over the concentration camps. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in those difficult days, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The physical presence, being together with one another, sharing at the table, proclaiming the gospel as we receive the elements, the bread and the juice, remembering the death and resurrection of Christ, his death in our place. It is almost certain that in the first two verses of our text, uh, Peter is addressing two different types of relationships. In verse 8, He's writing about relationships and responsibilities that we have to one another within the body of Christ. And then in verse 9, he is addressing <clears throat> the ways that believers should interact with those who not are on, or who are not only outside the church, but in many cases are hostile toward the gospel message. And those who are hostile toward the gospel message inevitably will be hostile to those who believe it, whether they're saying anything or not, just by virtue of believing. People get mad about that. We could spend the rest of our time dissecting verse 8, clearly, we could spend several weeks here, and seeking to understand what covenant community should look like. But when you consider the design of verse 8 that Peter employed, the meaning just pops Like other New Testament authors, Peter uses a chiastic structure to make his point with an A, B, C, B, A pattern. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A corresponds to A, B to B, and C is at the center So do you see how unity cannot be achieved without humility? We, especially Americans, feel so entitled. And we have such certainty about our own thoughts and our own ideas. And when others oppose us, In the church or outside the church, we tend to be defensive and dismissive of other people. It is impossible for us to be united together without humility. It is also impossible to express the right kind of sympathy without a tender heart. How can you engage in others' sorrows without a tender heart? Do you see where the tip of the arrow on this chiasm is pointing? To brotherly love. God is serious about His design for the covenant community in which we are all called to actively pursue brotherly love in the relationships we are blessed to share. That's why one of the reasons, let me just encourage those of you who are checking grace out, This is a good time to go ahead, get in the Grace Connection class and see if this is the place that God wants you to be. Students, adults, grandparents, doesn't matter who you are, all ages. Be here Saturday morning. Sign up before you come because Jeff might get, I don't know, Leanna may make some kind of delicious coffee cake or something for us Saturday morning. We've had it before. Not to put pressure on you, (laughs) Leanne. We will be sorely disappointed. if But it's okay. It's okay. You have other things to do. That'll be all right. But look, just be, it's time to get in community. It's time to just stop listening to the word and start living the word in community. If we are outstanding evangelists, effectively sharing the gospel whenever we have opportunity, and yet we fail in our relationships in the church because we're too distracted doing great things for God. Well, we fail. That's the first order of business in this text that deals with our witness, and that is the intentional sharing of Christ with others. There's one more thing we need to address before we start sharing the gospel, though. That's the focus of our second point. Get about the business of loving, forgiving, and blessing your enemies. Oh, man. I mean, it's one thing to do that for those in the body of Christ. It's another thing to do this for your enemies. Now, you know when I say do this before you do that, that I don't mean to take the posture of, well, I would love to share the gospel with you, but I'm not doing so well loving my brothers and sisters, and look, I really disagree with your political stance, and I don't love you at all, and so I shouldn't share the gospel. I'm unqualified to share the gospel. Look, none of us is ever qualified to share the gospel. Jerry Bridges wrote a book on personal holiness, and he said the great challenge was Every day as I'm writing this book, I'm looking in the mirror and I just drop my head and say, who are you to write a book on personal holiness? He also says when he's on the platform, because that's the way it used to be. We don't do it that way here. But he'd be on the platform waiting to preach. And he'd try to be constantly thinking, okay, did I have an argument with my wife? Did I have my quiet time this morning? Am I qualified to preach? Again, nobody's ever qualified. Makes that point very beautifully. We're not qualified to share the word of God, but God chooses to use us anyway. The direction for this point comes from verse 9 and following. And the benefit of the order in this text, and thus the ordering of the steps, these steps in our minds, is that we're reminded. That we are not about the business of getting people to agree with us. To get people on our side. We are about kingdom business. And our posture toward unbelievers is to be the same as Jesus. The posture was toward us. Even while we were in our sin. That is remarkably Our posture toward unbelievers is remarkably like our posture toward believers. Unfortunately, we tend to associate with our kind and our kind only. Martin Luther knew our sinful tendency to desire only peace and tranquility once we've gotten a taste of it. And although Luther rarely spoke candidly, that's a joke. Here's what he said about the believer's calling. Quote, The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies. Not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Close quote. You can hear him say it that in that way. When we mingle with those who hate the gospel, sooner or later we are going to suffer persecution. Although the intensity of suffering will be different for individuals and for different groups of believers. The tendency for believers in our culture is to be angry with those who mock our faith and either to shout them down, whether that be with our voices or with our keypads, or to ignore them entirely. But we're called to treat them the way we're called to treat our brothers and sisters, loving, forgiving, and blessing them, although we cannot expect reciprocal behavior. We can expect our brothers and sisters to love us back because that's what they're called to. We can't expect those who don't know Jesus I love us, so I've used this analogy before. But what if I'm, I'm, um, I'm losing my sight? And I'm up here, or all of a sudden I'm stricken blind while I'm up here. And I say, oh, I don't know where I am. And I walk in and I tumble down. Are you going to say, stupid? Why don't you just stand where you... Or you say, oh, no, oh, look. Come, come. let me help you. When you know that someone... It has limited sight. You want to help that person? Increasingly, around my friends who are my age and older, I have to speak louder. Look, I'm already a loud mouth, so you can imagine how it's going to be as the years go by for me. And you're just going to have to put up with it. You'll be, you'll be sympathetic, I hope. When we are confronted with ill behavior of unbelievers, why is it that we expect them to act as believers do? We're called to love them the way that Jesus loved us. And it's okay that they don't reciprocate, that they don't love us back, because we're not living for the benefits in this land. It's almost certain that when Peter referenced Psalm 34 in verses 10 and following, not for the first time in his book, he was making the connection between David running away from Saul, being persecuted by Saul and the persecution that the believers that Peter was writing to were facing. Now, these believers were facing very similar kinds of persecution to the what, what we suffer now. Uh, people not getting advancements in jobs and being sort of ostracized in the neighborhood or whatever uh, just because they follow Christ. But they were about to suffer some pretty serious persecution. He was preparing their hearts for it. Uh, it's also likely that the life promised in verse 10 was of an eschatological nature, the promise of eternal life for those who know Jesus. Remember, this, the whole focus of Peter's Letter is, you are elect exiles. You're living amongst those who don't share your kingdom values. And your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in the day when Jesus returns and when we all worship him with pure hearts together. Although the kingdom has already come with Jesus in his first advent, it's only going to come in full power at his second advent. Those who know Jesus must live as the Lord commands. And that includes being careful what we say. Not only about believers, but about unbelievers as well. So if we're desiring life that is yet to be because of, and it's difficult now because of the people who are around us and who oppose us and the, and the God speaking deceit. It's toward them as well as one another. So it, it's bad enough that we can't talk about the church folk, right? Now we can't even talk about the unbelievers. Who are we going to talk about? Nobody. That's the point. And having achieved this so well... It's a challenge. You know the greatest thing Allison ever says about her dad, she said, I've never heard him say a negative word about anybody. And in fact, when people would talk badly, he'd say, well, maybe they're having a bad day. I you wish you had that one? I you wish you were able to think like that? Rupert Weathers, closest thing I've ever known. In weigh a handful of you know Rupert. Well, that's convicting. Not because we want to avoid thinking more deeply about it, but indeed because we do get it. Let's move to our last point, which has two sub-points. Originally had three, down to two. I'll explain it in a minute. Understanding what is at stake. Since we know what is at stake, we must take advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. In Jesus' last days before he sent it back to heaven, he left clear instructions for the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was up on the screen this morning, Acts one eight, In Judea, or in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, all over the world. To the ends of the earth, take the gospel. It is right that we understand the Great Commission to be binding on us as well. The book of Acts gives many examples of men and women taking the gospel to the world at great cost. Both those who had been directly commissioned by Jesus took the gospel, and many who had not been commissioned directly by Jesus took the gospel to the world at great cost for their witness. That's one of the reasons it is So surprising that the letters written to the churches by the apostles and prophets have so little to say about bold gospel conversation with the lost. Much more is said about taking advantage of opportunities as they arise to share your understanding of the gospel and the reason that your life is the way it is, the changes that have been made in your life. That doesn't mean We should forsake intentional and active evangelism, especially while we have the freedom and the privilege to do that openly. But it does provide a model for many of our brothers and sisters who live with the constant threat of violent opposition to even their acknowledgement of belief in Christ. That may be us one day. Maybe a while, maybe sooner rather than later. We don't know. Even now, we're often restricted in what we can say at work and in other public settings. That's only one reason that 1 Peter 3.15 provides such encouragement and instruction to us as well. There's a lot going on in 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter three. 13 to 22. It would take weeks to sort all this out. I'm not going to get into what it meant Jesus was preaching to the spirits. I have my own understanding based on study and just my sense of scripture. Uh, But then in Noah and the baptism, we're going to talk about that just a little bit, but not at the length that you would want to uh, possibly. To give an example of everything that's going on, and this is just a tedious taste, in verses 14 and 15, Peter is likely referencing Isaiah 8, 12, 13, although he doesn't use a direct quote to that text. And in making this allusion, what you may miss here is that Peter affirms Jesus as equal to Yahweh. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was the covenant or the name for the covenant name for God and his people. He would use that name whenever he was talking about his relationship with his people. In the New Testament, or in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that began before Jesus even was born, the word Yahweh was translated into the Greek, or the name Yahweh was translated as Kyrios. So almost every time you see Jesus as Lord in the New Testament, They're essentially saying, Jesus is God. It's even stronger than it already is to us. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. So, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord, or Christ as Yahweh, holy. And then be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. We're told to honor Christ in our hearts Instead of fearing those who oppose us. That's not easy to do. But when someone threatens you, fear God more than you fear that person. I'm a fearful per- I've just always been a fearful person. Not nearly as much as I used to be. But I don't know how I would do. The Lord has helped me in some situations that were pretty sketchy and has helped me to stand for him, but I wonder how it would be. What he says is, honor Christ in your heart so greatly that you fear God more than man. You remember Jesus saying something like that, don't you? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And there's only one who can do that. And that's the Lord. So, this faithful obedience, when we are faithful to obey God's commands, it will lead us to love our opponents and be ready to give a meaningful witness when asked to explain our belief. In his letter written to a people on the brink of serious persecution, a point at which believers must stand or fall. Peter wrote of the eternal stakes for believing or rejecting Jesus. No one has a choice of being neutral. So let me just explain that statement a little bit. When persecution comes, that's going to be the time it's going to find out what we're made of. If it ever comes, we'll test our mettle at a level It will find out whether we really believe Jesus or whether we are so afraid of men and women that we fold on the spot. And if we recognize everything that is at stake, it will change the way that we treat people. It's not what's at stake for us. That has already been determined if we believe Jesus. We know where we are going. Not because... We've been good, but because Jesus was good and died in our place, that's the gospel. And what is it about the fact of telling people the Bible says we're all sinners that just makes them so mad? I mean, we think on this side of the equation, we look at we look at, at, at everything and say, "Oh, this is a good thing that I'm a sinner." And that Jesus died in my place. But a lot of people don't want to hear that because they want to be good enough and in fact most of us want to be good enough. Too. In our Christian walk and when we have to make the decision, and by the way, nobody can remain neutral. Either you believe in Jesus or you reject Him. I'm just going to give it some thought. I need to take Scripture says we're all opposed to Jesus until we are saved. By acknowledging our sins and trusting what Jesus did on the cross. When is payment for our sin, And with that message, when that message is proclaimed, no one can remain neutral. And that ought to encourage us and ignite our hearts with passion for those who don't believe. Jesus. So how might we be prepared when opportunities arise to share the life-changing truth of the gospel? Two quick thoughts. First, know the gospel. Remember your baptism. Now that's a phrase that a lot of evangelicals are not familiar with. I'm not going to get into the details of what the latter part, 1 Peter 3, means when the apostle states that baptism saves us, other than to say he quickly affirms baptism as a symbol of the washing away of our sins. Interesting that he uses baptism to picture redemptive work in our lives. We don't think about that except on the day that people are being baptized. In two, three weeks, three people. February 9th, I think that's Three Sundays away, three people so far are going to be baptized. If you've never been baptized, please talk to me. Let's talk about this. <laughs> because even though the New Testament makes it clear that baptism is not a part of our salvation, it doesn't know anything about an unbaptized un- believer. It just doesn't, you can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. Presbyterians often talk about going to church and remembering their baptism, which is amusing when you think that most Presbyterians most certainly do not remember their baptism as infants. My daughter Liz is the only person I know that remembers things when she was four weeks old. She doesn't really, but it just feels like she does. Uh, But we miss the point in our haste to seek to discredit others' baptism about pedo-baptism by making... Job. Baptism is a beautiful picture, not only of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but of our identification with Christ in dying to sin and being raised to walk in newness of life. So you see, if you go to church, what do we do at this table? We remember, don't we? And we participate. When we go to church and we remember those two Ordinances that the Lord, those two sacraments that, that Lee talked about this morning, baptism and the Lord's table, the Lord's body participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ as 1 Corinthians 10 talks about. And our hearts are encouraged and we understand the gospel at a deeper level. So, connecting baptism to Noah and the ark Peter was reminding us the stakes could not be higher when one is called to believe or reject Jesus. Those who believe will be saved. Those who do not believe will be judged. When we set our hearts and minds to know and understand the gospel at deeper levels than we do, no matter what our understanding is, our witness to others will improve wait a minute, I've got to follow this plan. Yes, it's good to have a plan when you're witnessing to someone. It's even better to know the gospel at the kinds of levels that will enable you to meet people where they are. And explain it in different ways. How many times did Jesus repeat his method of engaging those who were lost? Never, unless you talk about well, he gave it to the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees and a lot of that was very similar kind of methodology. But he was constantly changing up his message to the lost, Because every person is in a different place. And the better you know the gospel, the more you know the gospel, the more able you will be to speak that word of truth. And part of knowing the gospel is remembering your baptism. What the Lord has done for you. In verse 15, Peter says we're to be ready to give a defense or a reason explanation for our hope. It's interesting that he encourages us to defend our hope instead of the faith, contend for the faith like Jude does. Peter is again emphasizing the eschatological nature of this Christian life. We are to have hearts that are looking for the return of of Christ, when we will all, all who love, know and love Jesus, will worship him with pure hearts. It's not the case now that everyone believes, which is the last thought, uh, and why the last thought is so important. Proclaim the gospel. Explain the hope that is within you. Be able to explain the hope that is within you. Now, I had another point in between. Live the gospel, forgive your enemies. And then I decided not to put it in because I couldn't get enough confirmation from people saying, yes, that, that would be appropriate here. But the longer I, the more I read the text and what's before and what's after, Peter uses this following Jesus example over and over. And it's like Sean process. says, are we ever any more like Jesus than when we're forgiven our enemies? I can't think of anything that is more Christ-like than to forgive the ones who despise you, who mock you, who hate you, who want to see you dead. And when we are living the gospel, we must proclaim the gospel and explain the hope that is in us. The more you know about a subject such as the gospel, the better you will be able to speak it. Now, (laughs) even as I say that, it's really interesting, isn't it, that the younger we are as Christians, the more zealous we are to tell those about Christ who don't know Him. We're really not qualified at that point, but man, it's just something in us that has to happen. My uncle has been a barber all his life, and he's, you know, cuts a lot of important people's hair, important people in the eyes of the world. Right after I got saved, I had long hair. I was going to Team Valley that summer to work on work staff. I thought I was going to council, and Bob Anderson said, you've been saved a month and a half, you'll be on work staff this summer. <laughs> and so I was on work staff, but I had to get all my hair cut off. And I was at my uncle's barber shop, and I started talking about having an atmosphere where uh, the Lord would be pleased to come in. And John David, my uncle, was cutting this TV personality's hair. And so he started, he said, oh, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? And we started talking. And he stood there just about the entire time my hair was being cut talking to me. And he said, well, okay, in the end, I believe... Half of what you believe. I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. And I said, Yeah, but you'll spend eternity in a place you don't even believe. You know, I just talked like that when I was early. And he sort of smiled. He was amused and he walked away. Who knows what the Lord did with that? Who knows what the Lord does with our witness when we just so desperately want to share the good news? What a shame when we know it better than we've ever known it and we refuse. To share. The focus of this last point is an encouragement to be ready to verbally share the gospel. Our lives ought to provoke curiosity, invoke curiosity in others. But we have to be willing to share the truth the, of the gospel with unbelievers or they are not going to. To believe because they won't know. And Romans 10, right in the middle of the strongest part of all scripture. In this About the sovereignty of God in salvation. Says if you don't share it, they don't hear it. And they can't be saved. Most of us are not in a place where our freedom or lives are in danger if we share the gospel. Even so, we are called to live in such a way that others will be curious about the difference in our lives. And when the opportunity arises, speak up. Let me remind you, you don't have to share the whole gospel every time you speak with someone. And if you've already shared Christ saying less, may actually take you a lot further than saying more, especially parents of adult children. I know you desperately want them to be saved. Give it a rest. They know what you believe. Love them. Care for them. Same thing at work. In the neighborhood. Share Christ. But don't overdo it. That's not the problem for most of us. Overdoing it's not the problem. Underdoing it is. May God give us the strength and courage and wisdom... And love to share Jesus as the opportunities arise. As they surely will, even in a land that is increasingly opposed to the message and truth of the gospel. May we be faithful in all that we do in our interactions with one another, interactions with the lost, and in all we say. And may the Lord's will be done in our lives and in our witness. Let's pray. Father, your word, it's so powerful. We know that it always accomplishes the purposes for which it was intended. We also know that our hearts cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, in this instruction we have received today a a difficult and yet a beautiful word from the pen of a passionate, impulsive sometimes irrational man, Peter. We know that the Holy Spirit led him in everything he wrote. And we thank you that the word of God has come to us. May it live in our hearts and our lives and may it come alive to those with whom we share Jesus as we are given opportunity. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, for ears to hear, for eyes to see and hearts to believe. Lord, may our hearts be those that long for others to know what we know, yet better to know who we know, Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.